0: Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and supporting clinical research. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic assisted therapies to provide expert opinion share research results, and ultimately to help educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to support our mission, there are a number of ways that you can do this. You can join local chapter groups and be amongst the discussion, keep up to date with relevant information, and also help to share this information to your community. You can also share this podcast, leave a five-star review, that really helps, and provide comments or questions for the podcast, which really does help. These are all zero cost and simple ways that you can support the development of psychedelic assisted therapies within Australia and around the world. If you wish to be of financial assistance, you can donate directly at mindmedicinaustralia.org. And I have been asked by a number of people how they can support me and the podcast financially, which I really appreciate. And in response to that, I've created a Patreon account where you can support me in creating this content by donating a few dollars per month, whether it's $5 per month or $10, whatever feels right for you. Check out the show notes for all the links and thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. In this episode, I sit down with Professor David Nutt. He is an English neuropsychopharmacologist specializing in the research of drugs that affect the brain and conditions such as addiction, anxiety, and sleep. He is the chairman of Drug Science, a nonprofit which he founded in 2010 to provide independent evidence-based information on drugs. A little bit about David and his background, he completed psychiatry training in Oxford. He continued there as a lecturer and later as a welcome senior fellow in psychiatry. He then spent two years as chief of the section of clinical science in the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the National Institute of Health in the United States of America. Returning to England in 1988, he set up the Psychopharmacology Unit in Bristol University and is an interdis- interdisciplinary research group spanning psychiatry and pharmacology before moving to Imperial College London in 2008, or towards the end of 2008, where he led a similar group with particular focus on brain imaging, especially PET scans. Currently, he's the chair of drug science, as I mentioned earlier, which was formerly the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs, or ISCD, and president of the European Brain Council. Previously, he's been the president of the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology, the British Neuroscience Association, and the British Association of Psychopharmacology. He has published over 400 original research papers, a similar number of reviews, eight government reports on drugs, and 27 books. Nutt is the deputy head of the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College He and his team have published research into psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, as well as neuroimaging studies investigating psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, and DMT. Yes, a very long bio, but I felt that it was needed because he is an incredible wealth of knowledge, particularly in, of course, psychopharmacology or neuropsychopharmacology and the administration of drugs and how that relates to our brain and how it relates to different states of consciousness and what we can do with those different states to create, whether it's a new self or a new personality, um, whatever that is. So what did we talk about? We spoke about how drugs help our understanding of the brain. We spoke about the impact of prohibition on the investigation of various different types of drugs on the research and and those kind of things. We chat over a couple of key terms that are often misinterpreted, decriminalization, depenalization, and legalization. We also chat about drug harm profiles, particularly alcohol. Um, And then we also talk about MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin. We then get into the nitty-gritty and neuroscience, which I love, Uh, we, so we chat about the physiology and psychology of addiction. We talk about brain mind interplay and when Aldous Huxley first termed the brain being a reducing valve of reality, we speak about when the brain is decreased in activity, the mind expands and chat about the psychedelic experience, the default mode network, why and how profound alterations in consciousness can permit long-term change and how that relates to treating mental illness with psychedelics or psychedelic-assisted therapies. Um, We also chat about neuroplasticity, functional connectivity, serotonin's role in depression, a little bit of a comparison between SSRIs and psilocybin and exploring that 5-HT2A receptor that is most commonly associated with um, classical psychedelics as they attach to that particular receptor or subtype of receptor within the brain and finish off with a discussion around psychedelics versus psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and how they differ. All right, apologies for the very long extended uh, introduction to this episode. I felt that that background is kind of necessary to, to understand how important and influential David Nutt has been within the psychedelic space and, and understanding psychedelics through the lens of brain imaging and neuroscience. So all of that said, please enjoy this conversation and I'll see you here on the other side of it. David, well, firstly, thank you so, so much for joining me and welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast.
1: Pleasure. Thank
0: you. Yeah and your work was actually some of the the very first work that I'd come across when I first entered this space of psychedelic research and the investigation of of psychedelics in psychiatry so it feels like a real honor to to be able to to meet you face to face virtually and I'm very thankful for this opportunity and, and I really look forward to going a little deep into the science. I feel that a lot of the people I've spoken to can be sometimes quite hesitant with going really deep in science, but I'm coming from a science background. I love getting into the nitty gritty and the neuroimaging. So I hope that... Let's do uh, it. That invites you to get right in there. So perhaps let's start with, um, how do you describe what you do?
1: Uh, I am a neuropsychopharmacologist, which basically means I'm a psychiatrist who studies... effects of drugs on the brain and uses drugs to explore brain function with two views one is to understand the brain and the other is to work out how treatments that we have in psychiatry work and hopefully improve them
0: wonderful yeah and so i mean lsd for example was one way that we found out serotonin and how serotonin works so can you speak to the idea of how drugs are so helpful in understanding brain function
1: well so the brain is a chemical machine I mean, neurons, of course, you know, can communicate with each other because they pass electrical impulses down their, you know, their axons, their, you know, their regions. So the brain is two, you know, two hundred, one hundred and eighty billion little uh, neurons called pyramidal cells, which connect with each other. But they, when they're active, they fire off, and the electrical impulses go down the the axons, and they go. At, but to talk to the next neuron they have to jump across a space called a synapse. And almost always in the brain, that jump across the synapse is made by a chemical. So neurons release chemicals that then have an effect on another neuron. And there are about 80 different chemicals in the brain which communicate information. Some of them turn on other neurons, some of them turn off other neurons. Some of them add value or valence to the effect of other neurotransmitters. So the brain's a chemical machine, uh, drugs are chemicals, and, and the best way to start, in fact, really the only way to study the chemical machinery of the brain really is to develop and study drugs which work to either block the chemicals or stimulate the chemicals in the brain or somehow or other affect them in other ways. Yeah, wonderful. Now,
0: if I'm getting my facts correct here, you've administered more drugs and types of drugs to patients or subjects than anyone else in the world, which led you to become government chief advisor on drugs until you were ultimately or famously sacked from this job for speaking publicly about the fact that current drug policy does not line up with the science that we now know. So what impact has this prohibition of drugs had on the scientific as well as the psychiatric investigation of drugs and drug-assisted therapies?
1: Yes, well, I've, I worked for the government, British government, for 10 years leading the um, the committee that looks at drugs and drug harms. And <laughs> during that time, I, I set up a, what is then and still is now the most sophisticated, most transparent and objective way of assessing drug harms. And after I'd done that, uh, I came, we came to the realisation that the drug laws didn't have any relationship to harm. They were politically driven, not harm driven. And when I started talking about that, I got sacked. In the process of thinking about the impact of drugs such as psychedelics, such as cannabis, such as MDMA, all being banned on the grounds of harm, but in fact being banned because they were politically challenging. uh, I realized that an enormous amount of work had been denied. And in fact, psychedelics are the worst example. So effectively, research on psychedelics stopped in 1967 when the Americans decided to ban them because they thought they were promoting the anti-Vietnam War protest. So that's 55 years ago. And uh, the amount of research that could have happened in the last 55 years, and the number of patients that could have been treated, uh, it's uh, hundreds of thousands of researchers could have used them and probably millions of patients would have been treated. And I think that's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. Let me give you an example of the sort of comparative benefits and disbenefits of the banning. So, LSD was banned on the grounds that, it, in theory, it was causing people some harm, so the odd person might have been jumping out of a tree or out of a window or damaging themselves when they were in a trip. Maybe in the last 50 years, you know, the banning of LSD, if, if it, oh, I don't know if it actually stopped anyone using it, but let's just say it did, let's say it did prevent 10 deaths a year, Then maybe 500 deaths have been saved by the ban. What about the, the opportunities lost? Well. We knew by 1967, we knew that LSD was the most powerful treatment for alcoholism. It still is. If you go back to the old data, the data is better than anything we have today. Now, in those 55 years, over 100 million people worldwide have died prematurely from alcoholism. So if LSD only maybe helped 10% of them, so that's 10 million lives it could have saved and you've in, but the ban has perhaps saved fifty on five hundred lives. You know, it's completely disproportionate. The ban has not achieved its goal. All the ban has done is actually stop people doing research and stop people using them clinically. And that's why I say it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world.
0: Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it does seem so unjust that we're imprisoning people who clearly have a mental issue and not an issue with law. I mean. The fact that we're imprisoning people who are abusing or misusing drugs seems to be, I mean, ridiculous. And it seems that all addictions are caused from people a way of dealing with their own pain and and trauma or emotions or feelings. And I want to talk about addiction to begin with. Um, there seems to be Can I just say, can I just absolutely can I just say,
1: and that's just the ban. But then you have the policy which mean, you, you just touched on, and then the policy of, of criminalizing people who do use these drugs, uh, and, and in some countries executing them. I mean that adds that compounds the problem. So you've got two enormous, enormous failures: the failure of research and treatment, and then the misappropriation or the, the misapplication of penalties to people who I mean, it, when you put it all together, it's surely the, I mean, it's one of the worst excesses of humanity there's ever been.
0: Hmm. It's mind baffling when you, when you start to look at some of the successes like Portugal and and why we're not following along with that. And it's obvious that if we t- are to decriminalize these drug use won't just go up or an addiction won't go up because a lot of the arguments against it is, you know, well, we're just going to increase addiction and that's what we're trying to avoid. So maybe actually let's, let's start with a few, terminology because obviously Mind Medicine Australia exists to increase the advocacy and education around the clinical application of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy programs now let's just go over a couple of terms to so that the listeners are a little bit more clear with with legislation so what is meant by criminalization depenalization and legalization just so that we're all on the the same pathway there
1: absolutely so Criminalization is using the criminal law to impose sanctions on people who use drugs or who sell drugs. Decriminalisation uh, can mean that, you, well, decriminalisation means you don't use the criminal law. Now, in most countries where, like, and Portugal's the best example, but also the like, like the Netherlands, Holland as well, which decriminalised um, both um, cannabis and also some um, stimulants like MDMA, effectively, they... Um, decriminalization means that you don't apply criminal sanctions you don't give people criminal records you don't put them in prison what you do is is use civil sanctions and those can take the form of um, giving people fines or making them do social work but mostly and and this is the real benefit of of the particularly the portuguese approach you then treat the person who's using drugs rationally and if they're addicted to the drug then you treat them, you treat the addiction. And if they're not addicted to the drug, you make them do something in sort of reparation for um, for using the drug in, in an inappropriate way. And that has an enormous impact, a much bigger impact than most people would imagine on terms of drug use, because it dramatically reduces drug use. Because so, particularly drugs like heroin, you know, very heroin, cocaine, they're very addictive drugs. Because so many people are caught in this vicious cycle of, of, of actually encouraging others to use drugs, those drugs so they can get money to support themselves, so the so-called user-dealer. And and that has been shown over decades to be the way in which drug use gets spread through communities. Uh, So if you can actually stop the need of people to get money to basically, you know, to serve their own habit, then by giving them medical treatment or giving even prescribing drugs like heroin, which you can do, then you break that link. And then so you reduce the number of people subsequently getting addicted to drugs and that dramatically changes both the incidence of drug use and, and, and all the consequences of drug use like hiv but also it actually it actually reduces uh, crime as well and, and it reduces in, in the end it actually reduces the harms of drugs quite significantly because fewer users fewer harms
0: yeah absolutely and perhaps let's also speak to the um the massive variety of drugs and which drugs are the most harmful versus which are the least harmful, based on what we know through science. Yeah. So
1: one of the things we decided to do when we did our very detailed analysis was to separate drug harms uh, into two clusters: one cluster is a harm to the user, and the other cluster is a harm to society. And when you and if you then add them both together, you get an overall index of drug harms in a particular. Um, country or, or region. So we've had done that f- three times. We did it in the UK in 2010 in a, a famous Lancet paper. We did it in Europe um, in 2012, and we recently did it in Australia in 2000, the 2019 paper by Bonamo and colleagues. And in all those three jurisdictions, UK, Europe and Australia, alcohol is the most harmful drug overall. And that is because of the enormous burden that alcohol puts on other people. Uh, in Britain, and I'm sure the same is true in Australia, almost every family will know, will have been affected by alcohol. Either they will have someone in the family who's been badly affected by alcoholism, or they will have someone who's been damaged by someone who's been drunk, like a drunk driver or, or getting into a fight, et cetera. So, alcohol is the most harmful drug pretty much in all Western societies look at the other the other end, which are the least harmful drugs, well, drugs like LSD, magic mushrooms, MDMA, they have virtually no impact on other people. So they're, they're, they have very little social impact. In fact, the, the impact might even be positive, but that's, a, that's another question. And then when you look at the, har, the harms to the user, they also have considerably lower harms to the user than alcohol. And they're way less harmful to the user than the drugs which are most harmful to the user, which are drugs like Opiates, which can kill you, you as an them you know, through respiratory depression, or cocaine, or um, in Australia, of course, you've got this huge problem with crystal meth. So, it, it, fundamental differences in in the magnitude of the harms to society and to users, and uh, and yet the drugs which seem to get the most opprobrium, the most criticism, are the, the least harmful drugs.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Um let's let's talk about addiction. I I want to know you're obviously a, a very, very well versed in the neuroscience space. So is it physiological? Is it psychological? Is it genetic? What factors are leading to addiction? What what parts of the brain are involved in the addiction process, the the reward pathway and can you just give a, a basic overview of how addiction works and why people are so stuck in that?
1: Right. Okay. So that's a, that's quite a big question. Uh, yeah. It if is anyone anyone's addiction- life work? Sorry. Right, but uh, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to get it down to a few minutes. <laughs> there are three. When I teach about addiction, I I put up a triangle, and addiction is in the middle of the triangle, and on the three corners there are the social factors. And uh, that's one major factor. So social factors have a huge influence on two things, on, on well, particularly on the use of drugs. So you, you, social factors can reduce the use of drugs. If you eliminate the use of a drug, you don't get addicted to a drug. And um, we, I suppose the example you, we best see that is, are in Islamic countries where alcohol is very disapproved of. And, and there's less alcoholism in Islamic countries than in Western countries where alcohol is promoted. But there's not none. And it's even in Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia, you know, people like to drink and they go across to Bahrain and, and, and drink at the weekends and, and then come back and crash their cars on the way back. So, so social factors are really important. And then, the, then one other corner of the triangle, there are drug factors. And people say, oh, this drug's addictive. Hey, the, these chemicals are addictive. But in fact, that's not true. You, know, you can have a drug which is almost chemically identical to a very addictive drug. But it's not addictive because it doesn't get in the brain. And there's a very good example of that, which is a drug that probably you've all used, which is used to um, treat diarrhoea. It's called loperamide. Now, loperamide in the test tube, loperamide is more powerful than heroin. It was made to be an alternative to heroin, but it doesn't work as uh, as a, uh, a painkiller, and it doesn't. It's not addictive because when you take it, it doesn't get into the brain. But it does stop. It does give constipation, so it, it, you, you can use it to treat diarrhoea. And that's really important because people say, well, any drug that works on the dopamine system, any drug that works on the opiate system will be addictive. But the answer is not. If the drug doesn't get into the brain at all or if it gets in very slowly, then it tends not to be addictive. And this is where we get into this whole debate, which is perhaps not for today. People say, oh, stimulants are addictive. You know, kids on ADHD are going to be addicted to the fact that they're taking the stimulant. But the stimulants actually release, are released very slowly. So you don't get high from them. You just stay awake and focus better. So those are the drug factors. And then there are what I call the the brain factors. And and that's really the core of your question. So we know that actually for almost every drug, most people who use it don't get addicted. So that means that there's a difference between those who get addicted and those who don't get addicted. And we've done a huge amount of research on this. And we think there are three factors which uh, underpin vulnerability to addiction. The first is stress that if you're using drugs to medicate stress, to medicate depression or anxiety, or some other PTSD, then you're likely to get addicted to them because they're not treatments for those disorders. So the disorders don't go away. So you've got to keep taking the drug. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, the, the, the reward responsiveness of the system. Some people just find that when they take a drug, it, it, it changes their brain in a way that is so powerful and compelling that they can't stop using it. It puts them in the place they want to be. Uh, and I'll just give you an example of that. Tatum O'Neill, you know, the youngest ever winner of an Oscar, married to the best, greatest tennis player, arguably ever, but certainly at the time. You know. And um, McEnroe, you know, got everything, you know, famous, you know, just every couple of lovely kids. When she comes out of her heroin treatment program, she says, you know, they say, why did you take heroin? And she says, the only time I felt whole was on heroin. And this is really common. I've been treating people with alcohol problems for 40 years now. And, and you come at many of them and say, I'm only the real me is the me on alcohol. And, and, and that presents huge challenges to, to therapists because, because you know, if you stop people using, they're in a state which is, they don't want to be in. So, so it's, it's the, the way in which drugs can actually make you feel very different and, and actually make you feel optimal. And then the third real variable is is, is, it's kind of impulsivity and craving all those all those drug factors, which eventually the drugs change your brain in a way which make it harder and harder for you not to use them. They kind of capture the brain uh, and you end up having this habitual drive to take them. And I've I've got patients who, you know, we've, we've dried out from alcohol and they've been fine on the ward. And and after four weeks, you say, okay, you know, go out and I'll see you in outpatients next week. And they never turn up and then eventually they come back and, you, and then you say what happened and he said well i can remember vividly he said i suddenly found myself in an off license and i and i just drank a bottle of vodka he said i have no recollection whatsoever of going to the off license i didn't want to go to the off license i didn't even remember doing it i just remember suddenly sitting there with an empty bottle of vodka in my hand and that talks to the process that drugs particularly powerful drugs like alcohol heroin cocaine control the brain in a way which is even beyond you know it's subconscious. this guy is going and drinking without even knowing he's going and drinking
0: right and so addictions like food related or whether it's sexual addiction porn addiction are they uh kind of working on similar pathways in the brain
1: yeah it's a very good question i don't like the term food addiction uh but there isn't, because it's just, well, yeah, because I'm not sure all eating is addictive. I mean, I'm right. not Essential, even.
0: it is essential. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is a difference between, you don't have to take
1: alcohol, but you do need to eat. Yes. So, but there are, yeah, basically the appetitive system is relevant. But I think beyond that, actually, to, to be honest, I think, well, we've done a lot of research on this, is people who like food, it's not—it's not exactly the same kind of liking as for drugs. But that's just to put that to one side, but but they do share appetitive pathways. That's that's absolutely absolutely true. But I think the bigger overlap is in terms of dysregulation of self-control, uh, and those and those processes. Uh, you know, they they're they're actually a very interesting target for interventions, because if uh, if you could re-establish control. Or, and this is where we're going with psychedelics, if you can disrupt that habitual learning, one of the reasons people overeat is because it's so easy to overeat. So it becomes a habit. Uh, And then breaking habits, as we all know, know, stopping chewing your nails or twisting your hair is very difficult because they get downloaded into a, a part of the brain, which uh, is the same part of the brain that teaches you how to walk and how to ride a bicycle. You know, it's very difficult to unlearn how to walk, so hard to unlearn addictions. And I'm wondering if psychedelics might have some role there by disrupting this very repetitive kind of um, drives to, to, uh, to uh, you know, habitually overeat or take drugs.
0: From the, from the conversations that I have had with, with certain researchers, I often start to to ask questions related to the neuroscience and how the psychedelics, how psyched, the t- psychedelic experience relates to the brain. And I want to start this, the conversation of, of brain mind interplay because there's been, there is a as also uh, Aldous Huxley had said that reducing activity in the brain expands the mind. So do you want to perhaps explain the psychedelic state in at the level of, of Brain Absolutely. and that so is I think this is regions of the brain discovery in terms of psychedelics. To when I started doing psychedelic imaging, theory of, of how Harris, reducing uh, activity in the brain is, now, is expanding the mind.
1: Uh, we assume that when you took a psychedelic, unit, all those interesting experiences in the brain would be associated with the brain being turned on. So we assume that hallucinations would be because the visual cortex was overactive and that kind of work had never been done before with psychedelics, but it had been done with delirium. So people who hallucinate in delirium, they have overactive visual cortex. In fact, our colleague at the time, a collaborator, um, Amanda Fielding from the Beckley Foundation, she was convinced that hallucinations were due to increased visual activity in the visual cortex. And we did the first imaging studies and we found exactly the opposite. These drugs don't turn on the brain, they turn off the brain. In fact, the first experiment we did was with a f- particular form of MRI imaging called arterial spin labeling, and we thought, well, maybe we just got it wrong. Maybe you know. So then we redid the whole experiment using a different kind of imaging called bold. Got the same results, and we realized we'd actually discovered something fundamental. Is there's one of the axioms I use in uh, in science is if you get the ro- exactly the opposite result, you're going to be right, because there's no massaging the data, there's no change, you know, sort of altering the statistics. If you get exactly, you know, and I, several times in my life, I've actually got exactly, discovered I was going exactly the wrong way down the path. Anyway, so with psychedelics, it, it turns out that all these drugs basically turn off parts of the brain rather than turn on the brain. So how does that relate to the psychedelic experience? And that's where I went back. I, you know, I went back and I read Huxley. I read all he wrote about his experiences and then I realized he was right. That um, the reason you have a psychedelic experience is because psychedelics turn off the bits of the brain which control, and have been controlling for since you're a baby, the way you are allowed to use your mind. And uh, and it, and it you know the reducing valve as uh, Huxley said that, that the brains are reducing valve well, the brain is a, an organ for controlling limiting the mind. You switch off that and the mind can expand. Uh, and now we know that how that works and um we know it for two reasons we know from kind of classical neurophysiology that for instance if let's check at the visual system when you see something well you know i'm looking at you now right but but i'm not taking a picture of you my brain's not taking a picture what is happening is that Photons of light are coming from my computer screen. They're going into my retina, and my retina is turning the the photons into loads of different electrical impulses. You know, they're looking at the color and the shape and, and the, uh, the 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 density, the brightness, and that. And that's all going into, and all being that's all being coded as electricity. It's going into my visual cortex, and my visual cortex is recreating what it thinks is in front of me. Now, because your image hasn't changed in the last uh, 29 minutes, my visual cortex isn't even bothering now to upgrade what I'm seeing. If you turn into a tiger, I probably wouldn't notice. Because why would you? And this gets back to a fundamental concept, which has been around now, really since the 1880s with Helmholtz. And he, he said the brain is an inference-making machine. And the reason our brains are 10 times more efficient than any other computer is that we our brains work out what's there. And then they don't bother to upgrade, update what, what we're seeing until we need to. So they make these inferences. Inferences are really, really good because the chances of you turning into a tiger are zero. So I don't need to work out you're there, you're always there. Okay, so where does that happen? Well, that happens actually interesting, right across the brain. And this is where psychedelics get interesting because that process of integrating all the different elements of vision, the color, the shape, the movement, et cetera, the texture, density of light, et cetera. That's a huge amount of processing. It takes up about 20% of your brain. My brain is doing that now. And it requires a particular set of neurons in in the cortex that integrate activity across different cortical regions. And psychedelics disrupt those neurons. They're called the layer five pyramidal cells. And they're they're laden with the 5 HC2A receptor that psychedelics work on. And psychedelics stimulate these receptors, they overactivate those cells. And that, and that produces a disruption of that process. So you can't integrate. Uh, and therefore, you, your brain becomes un, unconstrained. So the first thing, the visual hallucinations, these elemental hallucinations, these colors, shapes, um, spirals, spiders, webs, and that what they are, those we know that, we know from very sophisticated electrophysiological measures of the visual system in things like frogs, that that is how the first level of reconstructing an image from the retina are these simple shapes. So actually under a psychedelic, when you're hallucinating, you are actually seeing the primary workings of your visual cortex. And now, to my mind, that's one of the greatest discoveries we made. Wow, you can you can actually see how your brain starts to reconstruct a visual image because, because you've disrupted the process of turning those simple shapes and colors into a bigger image. So that's the first thing. And also this disruption explains why people have ego disillusion, why some people, when they're psychedelics, they feel that they're floated out into space, they disappear you know, to heaven or whatever. That sense of, of moving out of the local environment that's because we disrupt a part of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex, and that's what integrates everything. That's where it integrates your seeing, your vision, your touch, your proprioception, where your joints are, et cetera, et cetera. If you disrupt that part of the brain, you cease, you cease to be a person. You, are, you become you know, atomized in, or, or, or diffuse. So we now can see these different brain regions having a, being disrupted and, and allocate or explain the different phenomena under psychedelics to those different disruptions. Make
0: sense? Yes, absolutely. So I guess the the posterior cingulate cortex, being a part of the the default network, that is more commonly um, talked about. So there's that that part of the brain that's I guess being disrupted. Yeah, or- let me talk about that. That's a really important point you would make. Yes. Yeah, so so that's so you
1: can see how individual parts of the brain, by disrupting those, you can get elements of the psychedelic state. But then. As, and we've been learning this as we went along. I'd never heard of a default mode network until I started disrupting it with drugs, and uh, and then we discover that there is this network in the brain which is called the default mode network, and it's been discovered by brain imaging. You you never imagine it was a network because you can't see it. It's not, it's not a. It's not a sort of structure, but it's a it's a it's a network which is a frontal part of the brain where you do your a lot of your thinking and your emotional recollection and, and, and you access all your personal memories. It's the post- that's the anterior cingulate cortex. The posterior cingulate cortex, which is what I've just explained, is all about integrating sensory inputs. And then there's some lateral parietal regions and the bits on the side of the brain. And it's called the default mode because when you're doing nothing, when you're just sitting reflecting qu- quietly, I'll tell you how to do this, your listeners, right. You know, when you finish listening to this podcast, just turn it off, close your eyes, don't listen to anything, and just reflect on what you learnt from listening to this podcast and whether it was worth bothering. And when you do that, if we were scanning you, your default mode network will be active because that's that's the network in which you do your self-recollection, your your your, you you make sense of you and what you are and what you wanted and whether it was worthwhile, etc. As soon as you start listening to something, your auditory networks activate. As soon as you start seeing things, your visual networks. As soon as you start running, your motor motor networks activated. So it's called the default mode because it's only you only really see it when you're not doing anything except thinking, and that network is where you're where you are as a person. If we, we know if you disrupt that, with psychedelics you have this sense of disintegration, ego dissolution. But we also know from other work we know if people get tumors, for instance, in their posterior cingulate cortex, then their sense of self disintegrates. And if you get damage to the frontal part of the brain, then your personality changes. So we've known that those different bits have roles, but now with brain imaging, they all come together. And the the default mode turns out to be one of the regulatory system in the brain. It's what kind of controls what you do because that's where you are. And then it becomes even more interesting because the default mode is completely dissolved under psychedelics, and that explains all the different features of the psychedelic experience. But more than that, and this is why we moved from just brain simple neuroscience into the field of um, psychiatry, the default mode is overactive in conditions like depression. The default mode locks depressed people into depressive thinking. And so we thought, well, if we can disrupt the default mode, maybe we can disrupt depressive thinking. And that's what we did. And, and remarkably, you, you can see that um, there's a yeah, remarkable positive impact of it's just a single psychedelic trip on people with depression
0: some people can often get frustrated by you know they've been in this work and tried to understand depression or anxiety for so long and then some psychedelic researchers say hey all you have to do is just turn down the network that causes your depression in the first place and then you know i mean it's obviously a a lot more complex than that but essentially a lot of mood-related disorders are just rigid thinking that you're stuck in this pattern of thinking and what you actually do require is to break that apart and form new perceptions and ideas. So perhaps in that theme of new perceptions and ideas, can you speak to functional connectivity and neuroplasticity in the psychedelic state and long, long-term long change?
1: Yeah, really. That's, yeah, so we've known really ever since um, Huxley, maybe you know, you know the, the, the psychedelic experience is a one people remember you know and that's really fascinating well, why would such a profound alteration in consciousness not impede your memory and that's because it's pharmacologically completely different and this is what i have this two dimensional theory of consciousness now there's this what you call the standard consciousness which is you know what you how awake you are and what you see and remember and that's all driven by the glutamate system uh, and that's i, I that is a phenomenally powerful precise system it, I, I call it a system for parcellation it you, can, you know, it allows everything all the millions you know terabytes of information stored in your brain they're all laid down by by glutamate synapses uh, and so they're all the facts but psychedelics with the serotonin system they change the valence uh, they actually don't parcelate; they integrate. So you've got this parcelation and this integration. So making sense of things with the serotonergic activation versus the um, segregation of things with glutamate. Okay, so how's that help? Well, we've talked about disrupting these persistent, negative, useless, destructive forms of thinking in, in depression, and and that's why we're moving now to study other disorders where people have these locked-in forms of thinking, such as anorexia and OCD. So that's we can disrupt that. But something really surprisingly interesting, and then again, this is very new. One of the exciting things about our research is that, so we started off saying, what is the psychedelic experience? Oh, wow. It's a complete disruption of the default mode. Uh, could that lead to lifting depression? Oh yes, it does. Wow, powerful! you know, some people have recovered, and some people are still, you know, eight years on, the depression's gone. Mostly it's come back, but we can talk about that in a minute. But that was such a powerful discovery that that and, and that, well, that's what we call translational medicine. You have a scientific discovery, and you move to medicine. But now we have back translation. We have basic scientists say, "Wow, what's the mechanism? How 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 does this happen?" And of course, we can't study the molecular. Science of psychedelics in humans—you've got to go back to, to preclinical models, animal models, and there you see the back translation has shown some fascinating things. It's shown that psychedelics disrupt functioning in rats as much as in humans, but they also—you can also look and see how they can—they can increase the development of new synapses, increase uh, synaptic spines. They can begin; the brain can actually begin to grow uh, in a in a restorative fashion, uh, and. Um, This We call this neuroplasticity. Uh, And this then makes a lot of sense of why people after a trip can actually re-engage in a new way of thinking because you've opened up a pathway and then you're laying down lots of new synaptic processes to allow you to to stick in that pathway and not slip back into the old depressive pathway.
0: Yeah, certainly. We we mentioned the 5-HT2A receptor earlier and... I mean, the role of serotonin serotonin um, as being, I guess somewhat we call the the here, here and now molecule in many ways, as is the endocannabinoid system in our body. Often here, neuroscientists speak of it as, as a here and now molecule. But is it possible that some elements of the efficacy of SSRIs being serotonin reuptake inhibitors are the 5-HD2A receptor?
1: No, in fact, the opposite. Uh, the, the, the problem is that the SSRIs, by increasing serotonin, actually desensitise the 2A receptor. So, a couple of years ago, Robin Carl harris and I sort of started putting our heads together. Okay, let's how can we make sense of? We've got t- two different ways of treating depression through serotonin. You've got SSRIs, which increase serotonin, and you've got psychedelics, which stimulate serotonin receptors. They sh- should have the same effect, but they don't. I mean, most obviously. Psychedelics work within hours and SSRIs take weeks to work. So they're they're probably different mechanisms. And we wrote a paper. It's now almost one of my most cited papers. I think it's got over nearly 500 citations. We call it A Tale of Two Receptors. And it's a freebie. It's in J Psychopharm a couple of years ago, General Psychopharmacology, A Tale of Two Receptors. And we postulate two fundamentally different ways in which you can lift depression. The traditional way through the SSRIs, increase serotonin, but we think the predominant effect is in the limbic system, in areas like the amygdala, the stress centers of the brain, you increase serotonin there, and you dampen down stress reactivity. And uh, my and, and that's to a spe- another serotonin receptor called the 5-HT1A receptor. And that's the only inhibitory serotonin receptor So increase serotonin at the 1A receptor, you dampen down the stress centers. So the analogy I use is that SSRIs are to depression, like Like plaster of Paris is to a fracture. You break your leg. In order for it to heal, you have to protect it. So you put your leg, your broken leg in a plaster, and then you let the healing take place. You protect the fracture from any disruption over it. And it takes a few weeks or months for the fracture to heal. SSRIs dampen down the stress centers of the brain so you're no longer suffering the effects of the stress. And over time, those parts of the brain can heal. And that's why it takes six to eight weeks for SSRIs to work because it takes that long for the healing to take place. Now, psychedelics work in a completely different part of the brain. They don't work in the limbic system, which is deep inside the brain. It, they work on the cortex and they disrupt cortical processes, uh, we've already discussed, and they disrupt the thinking process of depression. And by disrupting those, people can immediately be undepressed if you, if, because if you're not thinking depressed thoughts, you're kind of not depressed. And through the plasticity, You can actually engage in new ways of thinking and establish new ways of thinking. And this really gets back to this critical question. Why does a human brain have so many of these serotonin 2A receptors? Are they there waiting for us to find the mushrooms? I don't think so. I think they're there because they are important. I think the reason humans are so terrifyingly adaptable is that we've got a huge brain and we're really, really clever, but also we can can respond to challenges and discoveries in a way which no other species can, and that I think is because these two A receptors are actually are the ones which allow the laying down of these great insights. So the first man that discovered how to make fire, I suspect the encoding of that conceptual advance. I mean the difference between having no power and power, which is the fundamental, you know, in a way the beginnings of of, of human society that would have been encoded by the insights. The insight of that would have been encoded through these 2 A receptors, pulling together a brain network that really allowed you to remember how you made the fire and communicate with others how to spread that technology on.
0: Mm. And that really speaks to, I guess, the integration of psychedelic therapy, because, I mean, we have spoken a lot about psychedelic and and the psychedelic state, but I think what we should touch on in particular, is the model in which psychedelics are being implemented to psychotherapy. So perhaps let's speak to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and how that can differ to just taking psychedelics.
1: Absolutely. So the first thing to say is that um, the we've, yeah, as I said, going back to Hub Sleep, we know people who take psychedelics often have phenomenal experiences, and they often say that they are one of the most profound experiences of their lives. And Steve Jobs famously said, well, you know, LSD was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I, I mean, I like to wonder, I'd like to have asked him whether, you know, the, the whole concept of bringing aesthetics to computers was actually a psychedelic vision. And it, well, anyway, whatever, he certainly became the biggest company in the world at the time. So, you know, so you can see the value uh, and the enduring value of psychedelics to people who. Are, are, are you know just the people, but when you look at patients, it's different because the experiences of psychedelics in, in conditions like depression, they're often much less positive. And I mean, the trips themselves are often very challenging because people are people who have been traumatized and suffered for, often for decades. The trip takes them back to the causes of the trauma, and that can be really, really distressing. And that's why we only ever. When we're working with depression or other disorders, we always have therapists present. We have two in our group, but maybe you don't need to. But because we want, for two reasons. Firstly, we want to make sure that people know they're completely protected, that they're safe wherever they go. But then, of course, and, and this is where the, the real value of uh, of um, the treatments in depression come back. Some people you know, will get some benefit probably just from a trip, but, but we think they get a lot more benefit if they, after the trip, the next day we have what's called an integration session where they talk about the experiences and the therapists, the psychotherapist, help them make sense of what they've learned in the trip to understand perhaps the causes of their depression and maybe then put it to bed. I mean, one of our patients said during my trip, I saw my father abusing me and I put my hand up and I said, no, that will never happen again. And he got closure. And after that point, you know, he. It, it was as if he was free you know he'd actually ex, ex, expunged the father and, and and that makes a lot of sense you know one of the reasons people get locked into depressive thinking is because they're trying to repress they're trying to stop those memories but having confronted the memory and overcome it it's kind of like expiation so so that you can see powerful psychological changes occurring and 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 then on top of that, so you got psychotherapy in the context of this neuroplasticity, there's a real opportunity for people to to see the world differently, and you know to actually see the world in a positive way rather than a negative way to switch their valence. And, and so you know, we think that psychotherapy is a is a necessary and and certainly a, a very important and added value to the experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I guess that does speak to neuroplasticity as well because I mean at the core of neuroplasticity and learning is repetition and so I guess you're going in with the intention of learning how to think again or or resetting how to think again and so to integrate that is to then repeat your learnings and then take on board that into the future which is why we're seeing such positive results you know six and, and 12 months down the track but you you said we were going to speak to the people who do relapse and why that may be the cause so perhaps let's let's revisit that
1: yeah so to my mind the great challenge now is helping the people who respond but don't stay well and uh, it, it gets to a, a question which I'm wrestling with at present uh, and it's I think it's a a fundamental question which we don't really understand: Why, where is depression in the brain? Well, we've got a pretty good idea, you know, the circuits, but what's driving those circuits, and why? You know, <laughs> why do people get locked in? You know, we can obviously they get locked in because they're traumatised, and, and and trauma disrupts brain thinking, and a lot of it, I think, is particularly childhood trauma. And this is weird, you know. So here I'm a psychopharmacologist, neuroscientist, and now I'm starting talking Freudian terms about children interjecting, the, you know, the burden of their parents and, and becoming, you know, taking on the sickness and the, of the trauma uh, that they're you know, becoming the cause of their parents' anger. I think we have to look to what is what is going on in in chronic trauma, particularly childhood trauma, that sets the brain so that kids always have a low self-esteem and have always have negative thoughts somewhere in the brain there is a site which is driving and encoding and driving this negative thinking why is that and where is that so what we do know is that it is really powerful uh, that, you know we can suppress it through our psychedelics we can suppress it for weeks or maybe months in some people but it comes back so it's almost i kind of i've always had the cancer analogy it's like a growth you know it, it, it's 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 fighting fighting back all the time to dominate your thinking. So one of the ways we're approaching that is to try to give people um, repeated doses. Uh, And this is really difficult. This is one of the reasons I'm desperate for a change in regulation. It's because we have patients who, in our clinical trial, were transformed. Their lives were changed. There's a film you might see. it's, It's called Magic Medicine, and it shows one man whose life was absolutely transformed. His family were back together. It was perfect. They were all back living happily. And then his depression came back. And he's completely destroyed his fat. In fact, they're worse than before because they could see he could get better, but he can't, he's not allowed to have the treatment anymore because it's not part of a trial. And, you know, we, we haven't got money to do, you know, we can't, we haven't got funding to do trials on people who've responded already and need more. So he's very, very distressed because he see, he knows there's a cure, but he's not allowed access to it. And that is really cruel. So, so one, one approach is to try to, Give repeated doses, and but there may be other approaches. It may be more psychotherapy. It's possible, even that when people are well, putting them on something like an SSRI might hold, might keep them well over time. You know, there are, and this I think is one of the great areas of research in the next uh, the next decade. Now, you know, how to maintain the efficacy of the uh, initial treatments.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like where the psychedelic research is entering. Somewhat of maturity in terms of what the set and setting look like, and and how that all looks in terms of a, a psychotherapy course. But I guess these are the things that we we seem to be uh, fine tuning now. It's it's how many times, how many, how is this going to scale, and is there going to be uh, yeah repeated things over a number of years or or things like that. So, I mean, in research, there's always going to be questions that need to be answered, but I think a big thing now that we are coming to realize is that these are incredibly powerful medicines with incredible rates of success. And it is unfair that we live in a society today that has pushed these medicines so far back and and stigmatized these medicines that are not allowed to be researched in, in the manner that they should be. So what do you think is the biggest obstacle that is in the way of making this more of a, a mainstream treatment? Well, the regulations, these drugs
1: are still illegal under the UN conventions. So uh, a, couple, a, few, a couple of hundred countries have signed those. They're not actually, I mean, apart from some Latin American countries which allow ayahuasca and Holland, which allows the, uh, the truffle, the side of the in the truffle, they're not legal anywhere in the world. Now, one of the exciting things is we're seeing that in America, some of the states, so Oregon has voted to uh, decriminalize mushrooms and to actually bring forward in a couple of years a treatment program with mushrooms, and a few other states and so have now um, decriminalized the use of mushrooms, which is exciting, and it's a move in the right direction, and it may be that we ha- we just have to do it without getting the UN conventions to change. Just in the same way with cannabis and the UN conventions, the UN are refusing I don't know if you know this, but I think two, a year, over a year ago the WHO recommended that cannabis be, be taken out of Schedule One of the UN conventions. The UN still haven't agreed because the UN is still controlled by countries like America, which, where under federal law, cannabis is still illegal. Russia, China. Uh, so I don't think we can. The UN conventions are, you know, they're they're you know, they're, they're a religious belief system, we can't change that. So what we have, individual countries now have to say, the, those conventions are not evidence based and we're going to develop our own evidence and we're going to go it alone. And and that's why I'm very excited for Australia for two reasons. The first is you're the only country that's actually put forward a specific you know, research set of research funds for psychedelic research, which is absolutely fantastic. And also we're hoping that the TGA will change the um, their attitude to these and make you know downgrade them from you know level nine to level eight and hopefully that that will make life a lot easier for that, particularly for compassionate use so i think it's going to be up to individual countries we're pretty clear now that you know no there won't be any sanctions from the united nations anymore because they essentially given up with cannabis so i think it's an opportunity now for countries to be bold and, and and actually you know and basically put science ahead of politics and let let these drugs become available as medicines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we are coming to running out of time in this episode. Where can people connect with you? You obviously got your expertise across quite a few different places. Now, how can we access your mind through sound or through videos? What's the best way that we can do that?
1: Okay, well, the best way is to go on the drug science website. Drug science is a charity I set up. When the government sacked me, I decided that... uh, and set up a charity that actually gave people what they needed from government, which is the truth about drugs, and the government can't do that. So we have the charity Drug Science. Go on the website, and there you will find my podcasts, which uh, you know there's I think there are about forty of them now, and, and some of the pioneers of psychedelic research are there. Uh, and you'll also find lectures from me, and also you'll find all uh, you'll find a fantastic slide set. We've developed wonderful slide sets now for public use on LSD, psilocybin, DMT. I think refined we'll methoxy is coming along now, ketamine, cannabis. So you can find vast amounts of information. And then follow me on Twitter and I'll be tweeting out all our new papers and our new research, uh, Prof David Nutt on Twitter. And uh, and hopefully, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm still hoping I might be in Australia for the my medicine conference in November. We've applied for permission to come. We don't know if the government will approve. Uh, so I'm I'm hoping to see you all there in, in November. Fingers crossed.
0: Yes, fingers absolutely crossed, David. Thank you so much for your time. You're so, such an enjoyment to to talk with, and your your energy is great. And I appreciate you you taking the time out of your morning to to speak to me and to speak to all the listeners. And we're eager to to see where this research goes. And we are all fingers and fingers and toes are crossed um, to to really open up this, this research to more people. I'll just
1: tell you in a few weeks we're going to I'm pretty sure we're going to have accepted the paper the brain imaging paper that shows that the theory is right that psychedelics work in a different part of the brain to SSRI so if you start following me on twitter now you I think you're going to see a very very exciting piece of research coming out in a few weeks time and uh, yeah and again thank you thank you very much it's been wonderful let me have the When we finish, when it goes up, send me the link and I'll tweet it. I'm sure my followers will be delighted to. It's been a great interview. Thank you so much.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. You enjoy your day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope that you did because you're still here, there are a number of zero-cost ways you can do this. Share it with a friend, share it on social media, or leave a five-star review or all of those things. If you wish to be a financial assistance, I will remind you that you can donate directly to mindmedicinaustralia.org. If you wish to support myself and the podcast financially, I have created a Patreon account where you can support me in creating this content by donating a few dollars per month, whether it's $1, $2, $5, $10, whatever feels right for you. Check out the show notes for all of the links and all of the links that we discussed in this episode as well. And finally, the information shared within this episode was provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. Amazing thank you so so much if you're still here well done yeah <laughs> thank you um the next episode I actually sit down with Adam Gazali, who is very experienced in the neuroscience space particularly in neurotechnology so that was a really interesting conversation I'm really excited to share that with you so that's what's next up for this podcast uh, but until then Make sure you keep well, stay on top of your health and until then, take care.